The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 176. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back in the program. It's been a couple of weeks. Glad that you're here with me. I was ill for a couple of weeks. Had the flu. My voice wouldn't work. So I couldn't do a podcast. My velvety smooth tones were gone. So I'm glad to be back here with you and glad to be uh, doing this podcast again. It's exciting to get back in the saddle. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. You can like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Also go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. Give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook and a free audiobook, Forgotten Founders. Uh, and you'll get on my email list. So I'll send you a few emails. When I've got promotions going on with my McClanahan Academy, you'll get more. Uh, but don't uh, don't sweat it. I'm not going to abuse you with those emails. Also, don't forget, uh, to if you uh, like this podcast, go on out to iTunes and leave a good review. Help boost it up the, the rankings there. The more reviews, the better. The more people will see it, and the more people will enjoy The Brian McClanahan Show. You can also... Support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. Uh, you can throw a few pennies my way. I'll help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also get your Brian McClanahan Show gear by going to redbubble.com. Redbubble. Putting in my name and you'll find all the materials that you can get. T-shirts. You can get uh, wall clocks. You can get stickers. All kinds of cool stuff. Stationery with the Brian McClanahan Show logo on it. So going out to Redbubble and get your gear. I haven't mentioned that in a while. And, of course, you can go to mclanahanacademy.com where I've got all of my McClanahan Academy courses. There is a new one coming out. If you're getting this podcast the week of October 1st, there will be a new McClanahan Academy course uh, within the week available for you to purchase. If you are a McClanahan Academy subscriber, you get the only discounts I'm offering. So you still have a little bit of time to get the discounts. And those discounts will go away once the course launches. So if you're hearing this before the course launches, you'll get an email at some point when you enroll in McClanahan Academy. It's free with the discount coupon code. You're going to want that. And the course, of course, is on the Constitution. It's a massive course. It is the largest course I've produced. It's going to be awesome. It is awesome. So you're going to want to get that. All right. Well, today... I want to talk about Andrew Jackson, and I want to talk about Andrew Jackson in relation to a new book from Regnery History in defense of Andrew Jackson written by Brad Berzer of Hillsdale College, and Brad is a great guy, very nice individual. I, I, I don't think of all the people that I've met in um, what I do that I've really met anyone nicer than Brad Berzer, and I, I say that with all sincerity. He is one of the nicest individuals, one of the nicest fellows I've ever met. Uh, and I've never met him in person. Of course, met him online. Had a had a uh, a conference with him, um, a Q and A with him at one point. Super nice individual, and it, he comes across like that no matter whether you've met him in person or not. Just a nice fella, and um, it, it's it's refreshing to see that because so many academics are just mean, uh, petty, bitter people, and Brad is just not that way. Uh, a lot of academics are thin-skinned. I've never even considered Brad to ever be thin-skinned. He's he's someone that likes to talk about uh, what he writes, and if you disagree with him, it's okay. Um, I mean, that's that's just so refreshing. And I, I will say this about a book that I criticized a while back, Forced Neighbors, 
book on the Republican Party and Reconstruction. Forrest Neighbors was also uh, a, a very nice individual and someone who was willing. You, I mean, he didn't care if you disagree with him and if you just vehemently disagree with him. He was just happy that you were reading the book and you were actually talking about it. So um, I, I'll say this about Brad. I mean, again, super nice guy. If you ever get the chance uh, to uh, have a conversation with Brad, go do it because you're going to learn a lot. And of course, he has a wide, I mean, he's very eclectic in his taste. And I think he's writing a book on Batman right now or something. This is, um, you know, he's an interesting fellow. Um, so Brad, of course, also is part of American Conservative now. And um, he's been uh, at Hillsdale College for years, uh, since the late 90s, I believe. So um, he's written a, a great book on Charles Carroll of Carrollton as well. I highly recommend that book. But then we have this new one on Andrew Jackson. Now, I've written a lot about Andrew Jackson. In fact, uh, I've, I've covered him twice in two chapters in two different books. One was my politically incorrect guide to real American heroes. The other was in my nine presidents who screwed up America. So this is kind of funny. I have one book where I am uh, very critical of Jackson in nine presidents and one book where I'm highly laudatory of Jackson in my pig to real American heroes. So which position do I actually hold? Now, of course, in the pig to real American heroes, I do qualify my praise of Jackson by saying that I'm not a big fan of his presidency. But I think Jackson is, or was, a real American hero. So when I got this book, first of all, it's not a long read. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, quite a, it's a breezy read. It's easy to get through. Um, it's a fun read. And I think that you should go out there and get it uh, because if you want to learn a little bit about Jackson, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a nice, succinct uh, combination of my, both of my positions in a way. Now, I, don't, I, I disagree with Brad on the presidency. I will say that. Um, but other than that, I mean, it's, it's like I was reading the first part of the book. It's like, hey, I, it's like I wrote this, right? I mean, it's, so I look at this and I think, yeah, he's, he's right on. He's right on here. He's exactly right here with Jackson. Now, this is what he says about Andrew Jackson, and I'm going to get into my opinions on Andrew Jackson and, of course, supplementing it with, with Brad's book. He says this, quote, Jackson was a true Republican, a true, a true American, and a true heir to the Founding Fathers. In an age that wants to disparage and forget the past, we would do well to re-engage with it and remind ourselves of the principles and controversies and debates that undergird the American experiment in Republican government. Without that memory, our republic will not long endure. So he's saying, um, and he says this before that, in America that builds the most massive shrines of the power of the corrupt and the manipulative, such as Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson, Jackson seems more than a world away from us. But continuing to study his enduring legacy will help us grasp at, grasp at the noble principles that inspired the man who devoted his life to making democracy possible and the union invaluable. Now, I agree with Brad in some of that assessment. Um, and he does a nice job in defending his positions. I mean, he, he says that Jackson is an heir to the founding generation. He says that Jackson is a true Republican. He says that Jackson saved the union, saved the executive branch from extinction because he asserted that the executive was a co-equal branch of government. He was one of the stronger presidents of the 19th century. Um, so let me talk about Jackson as the man. Now, 
Jefferson said that Jackson was a dangerous man. So there were those in the founding generation that weren't too comfortable with Andrew Jackson. And Jackson's rhetoric was often Jeffersonian, though his actions could be, at times, particularly as president, he could deviate from that. But before he was president, um, Jackson was a fairly consistent Republican. Now, if you read what David Crockett had to say about Andrew Jackson, it's not so. If you read Jackson's opponents, it's not so. If you read, and he even gets into some of this, uh, John Sevier, actually how you would really pronounce that is Xavier, but Sevierville, Tennessee. I mean, Jackson's home area of Tennessee. There were those that loved Andrew Jackson and those that didn't like Andrew Jackson. Jackson certainly was a man of his people. He was had a Celtic temperament. It was said that Jackson had a hot temper, that you didn't want to fight Andrew Jackson. Now, when he was a man, he was six foot one, about 130 pounds. He was not a big man, but he was a fighter. He was a street fighter. Jackson was reared in this Celtic society where that particular strain was something to be admired. The Celts, the Celtic peoples on the frontier, I mean, these people wanted very strong clannish type government and the strongest, the warrior caste system was what dominated that particular culture. And Jackson certainly was a part of it. He was a, an individualistic frontiersman without question. Um, and Jackson was an American hero. You can't get around that. The fact that Jackson uh, took part in many of the major engagements that led to the independency of the United States, and not just in the American War for Independence. I mean, I, some people would say Jackson was a, a, a veteran of that war. He was 13 years old, and of course he was wounded and put in prison, uh, but he was never really a veteran. He was a little bit too young to be considered a veteran. I mean, there were boys that were engaged in that struggle. And, of course, Jackson was an, art, was an ardent partisan, patriot. But to say he was a member of the founding generation is a stretch. He was really kind of in a, in a gray area there. I mean, he, he wasn't of the second generation because he was born a little bit too early. I mean, he was born before, for example, John Randolph of Roanoke or John C. Calhoun. But um, he was not old enough, really, to be a considered part of the founding generation. An heir to the founding fathers, in some ways. I mean, when you look at, if, if Brad's saying that because of his Republican principles he's that, I, I think you could say that. You can make a case for that. Certainly one of the areas that Jackson, and I think Brad does a wonderful job with this, is um, a, a true Republican, is in his use or views of the military power. One of the things that the founding generation was most concerned about was the abuse of a standing army, the military over the civil power. If you look at the Declaration of Independence, for example, it's two, two of those items, what I just said, are part of the critique of the British Empire at that particular point. The fact that the British were sending over the redcoats and they were uh, essentially creating a martial law in the American colonies that they were abusing the colonists with the military power, the military over the civil power, the standing army, which created uh, a threat to liberty. So Jackson agreed with that 150%. He always believed in the militia. And that was the American military tradition, really up until the early 20th century, that we would have militias. And all of the major wars in American history, up until the early 20th century, 
were essentially fought with militia. Even the war for Southern independence, or the, the war between the states, or whatever you want to call it. I, I prefer war for Southern independence because that's what it was. Even when you look at that particular war, both sides, North and South, were generally using what would be considered militias. You did have a regular army in the North and sort of in the South, uh, but these units were organized by state and you still fought with those from your community in your state. I mean, if you're from Massachusetts, you're fighting side by side with people from your town. If you're from New York, you're doing the same thing. If you're from South Carolina or Alabama, you're doing the same thing. You're fighting in a militia-type structure. And so Jackson was a firm proponent of that and believed that militias were all that was necessary to defend the United States. He needed a strong militia. But even you know when you look at his actions uh, in Florida, when you look at his actions during the War of 1812 in Louisiana, when you look at his actions during the Creek War, I mean, he was fighting with the Tennessee militia. So Jackson, in that way, was a true Republican. Uh, Jackson, what's interesting about Jackson is that uh, when he became a senator, this is where uh, you know David Crockett did call out Jackson for being somewhat inconsistent. I, I think politically Jackson was a mess at times, um, though I think pr- in principle... He was very consistent. So I agree with Brad on that. And in fact, I said that in, in the Q&A I had with, with uh, Brad about a week ago, that I agree that Jackson was consistent in principle. Uh, it, and it has to do with his culture. I mean, when you look at Jackson's temperament, it comes out of that Celtic culture. Uh, when you look at Jackson as president, he's, it's, it's exactly what he has. Uh, but uh, when you look at his principles and how he applied them politically, it was a mess. For example... Uh, when Jackson was uh, a senator from Tennessee, David Crockett pointed out his inconsistencies. Jackson would favor one thing, then not favor that thing. And so which one was it? Which Jackson are we going to get in office? Um, Jackson did not have a, f- a really great formal education at all. He was a self-made man, and that way he was purely American. But he was also a frontiersman, which is why members of the Virginia Society old uh, North Carolina society, South Carolina society, Massachusetts society, to, I mean, take your pick of these older societies, were suspicious of Andrew Jackson because he was a frontiersman. It was a little different than what they were used to uh, when he took office as president. He was, in some ways, you know, the consummate outsider. He had served in the Senate, yes, but his reputation was made as a war hero, not as a senator. He was only elected as a senator or at one point a judge because of who he was, because he was the great war hero, Andrew Jackson, because he's the guy that defeated the British at the Battle of New Orleans, because he's the guy that won the Creek War. He's the guy that defeated the Creeks at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. I mean, this was Andrew Jackson. So um, in that way, I mean, Jackson was a great man because of who he was, not because of the office that he held. He was only elected president because he was Andrew Jackson, you see. And he was a deviation. Uh, You know, you get to Jackson, he's the first president outside of Massachusetts or Virginia to be elected. It was the first time we had the popular vote tallied, and Jackson won the popular vote in 1824, at least got had the most of those, plurality of the votes, and he won the popular vote in 1828. And he won the popular vote in 1832. So Jackson certainly was popular. 
Now, some of the critiques, I'm not one of these individuals also that's the Andrew Jackson, the good, the bad, and the ugly, where he's where you're very critical of Jackson for his activities with the American Indian tribes, for example. And I think Brad does a wonderful job pointing this out. Jackson was no Indian hater. He, in fact, adopted a, a Indian boy and loved him as, a, as his own son. Um, so he was no Indian hater. Now, he did view the tribes at times as the enemy of the United States, particularly the uh, the Upper Creek Confederacy, which was hostile to the U.S. during the War of 1812. Though he didn't hate all the Creek Indians, I mean, he was fighting with some of the Creeks against these hostile Creeks. you got to remember the Creek War was, in fact, a civil war between two factions of the Creek Nation, and Jackson was fighting with those Creeks against the other Creeks. Um, he didn't like the Seminole Indians because he believed that they were aggressive and hostile, but he was also understanding that these Indian tribe, this Indian tribe was being incited by the British and potentially the Spanish in Florida, but more the British, which is why he hung a couple of British officials. So Jackson was certainly an individual who was whose positions were tempered by reality and what he saw. He was even-handed and fair in that way. When you point to uh, the Indian Removal Act of 1830, Jackson was siding with the state of Georgia in that particular situation, and he was also opposed to Marshall's decision when it came to removing the Indian, uh, the, Creek, the Cherokee Indians, because he thought this was a state issue. Now, there's his principle to a point where he's saying, I'm going to side with Georgia in this particular case. I'm going to side with the state of Georgia because this is a state issue. Now, you can quibble about whether it really was a state issue. You have uh, formally ratified treaties between the United States and the Cherokee Nation, and uh, that land was set aside as part of Cherokee land. And so I think in that particular way, Marshall was actually right when you look at foreign policy and the powers of the general government. But regardless, uh, Jackson was, again, in his mind, even-handed. Now, Jackson did not preside over the removal of these tribes. That was Martin Van Buren. Uh, some of the tribes removed... Um, some of the people removed at the very early stages of the Van Buren administration. But that trail of tears that every one of these tribes went through, the five civilized nations, it wasn't just the Cherokee. It was also the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Creek, and the Seminole. All these tribes removed to Oklahoma. Um, and there were their own trail of tears. I mean, each one of these. And so the application of that law is one of the areas where Jackson is often criticized without understanding that Jackson really didn't have much to do with it after the law was passed. He signed it into law, of course, and opposed Marshall's decision. But um, it was more the Van Buren administration that actually executed that law. So I'm not necessarily critical of Jackson there. Uh, I do disagree with, with Brad in terms of Jackson's presidency. Um, Jackson, and look, the first strong executive was George Washington. Without question, Washington uh, was formulating the office of the presidency, putting it into effect. Um, he was the man that everyone had in mind when the executive branch was was crafted in the Philadelphia Convention, and they pointed this out. Benjamin Franklin said, we know the first guy's going to be. He's going to be good, but after that, I don't know. And Andrew Jackson... Um, would have been opposed by some members of that founding generation. There's no question about it. Um, Andrew Jackson, again, as president, has things to like and things not to like. Now, one thing you can say about his personal life, he was consistent in his defense of women. 
one of the areas where Jackson was uh, very upset in life and it was when his wife died of a heart attack. In his mind, because people like Henry Clay had been abusing her reputation in the press in the lead-up to his election, uh, calling her a bigamist, and, uh, which was actually true. Um, but nevertheless, uh, they uh, were highly critical of, of Rachel Jackson. And because of that, Jackson believed she had a heart attack and died. And so he was always ticked off about this. And when uh, Peggy Eaton in the Petticoat Affair, when she was being criticized by Washington society, namely uh, John C. Calhoun's wife, um, he was not very happy about that and sided with Peggy Eaton over the wives of all these other men and told these guys, look, you're either going to defend, you're going to tell your wife, tell your wives that they're going to like Peggy Eaton, or you can resign. Well, you know what's going to happen there. Uh, but the petticoat affair. I mean, the only guy that really sided with Jackson was Martin Van Buren. Why? Because he wasn't married. I mean, he didn't have anything to lose. But uh, certainly, um, this petticoat affair was a defining moment for Jackson personally. I mean, he's looking at this and saying, this woman is being disrespected. You're going to stop. My wife was disrespected. So that is Jackson as a man. This is Jackson defending women. And I think that... Um, that's an admirable trait for Andrew Jackson. Now, what about some of the things he did as president that I would say were highly problematic or not problematic? Well, we all stand up and applaud Jackson's veto of the uh, rechartering of the Second Bank of the United States. And he did so not necessarily because of principle, but because he didn't like Henry Clay and he knew Henry Clay was behind it. I mean, Jackson was never really that much of a anti-bank guy leading up to the time he was in the executive office. Uh, He fought a duel with one of the bank's most ardent opponents, Thomas Hart Benton, carried a bullet in his shoulder from Benton for the rest of his life. But he and Benton worked together on this. And that's one thing you can say about Jackson. He didn't hold grudges after the duel was taking place. I mean, John Sevier, for example, uh, he he and Sevier didn't like each other. They, They dueled and then, but everyone shook hands and it was fine. Same thing with Thomas Hart Benton. Now, if he never reconciled with you, <coughs> excuse me, or with Jackson, he would hold you as a personal enemy. John C. Calhoun was a personal enemy. Henry Clay was a personal enemy. He never reconciled with either one of those individuals. And so when he found out Clay was behind the bank, he wanted it gone. And he vetoed it. Great. The thing that Jackson did, though, that was highly illegal was ignoring the fact that it was he couldn't withdraw American deposits or central government deposits out of the bank. He couldn't do it. And he kept hiring and firing a Secretary of Treasury until he got one that would do it. And that was Roger Tawney. So Roger Tawney was breaking the law at the insistence of Andrew Jackson because Jackson wanted to punish those who had supported Henry Clay, like Nicholas Biddle. He wanted to punish these people. And by withdrawing the bank deposits and putting them in his state banks, what were called his pet banks, he could do that. But this was all illegal. It was all illegal. So Jackson's breaking the law, and um, I mean, that's not a good thing. You don't want the executive, the president breaking the law, all because of a political battle. I mean, you could have let those deposits stay in the bank until the bank expired, and then you had had replaced it with something else. And of course, this leaves a great big mess because they didn't replace it with anything else. Martin Van Buren advocated independent treasury. We didn't get that until the James K. Polk administration. 
1841, and that when, when the Polk administration began. I think it was 41 or 42 we had the independent treasury. But um, certainly, uh, Jackson's actions led to a financial crisis. I mean, something that Van Buren had to clean up when he became uh, president. So in that way, Jackson was being his partisanship, or at least his personal squabbles, led to an illegal act which caused financial damage. Now, Jackson was also, though, a budget hawk, and the United States government was debt-free for the only time in its history during the Jackson administration. So in that way, you stand up and say, yeah, that's great. Now, what about the nullification crisis? And Brad talks about this in the book. Um, he gives Jackson credit for winning the nullification crisis. I disagree. Nullification, uh, the, the victors of nullification were the people of South Carolina because the tariff was reduced, which is what they wanted, and they nullified the force bill. So nullification actually worked. Jackson was put in a situation, though, where he believed he had to defend the executive and defend the union. Now, um, he made a statement about the fact that there's no evidence in the Constitution that nullification is legal. I think you have to go back and look at the ratifying debates to determine that, yes, in fact, it is. Um, because people said over and over again, the states would be powerful enough to check a law that's unconstitutional. And to the people of South Carolina, the tariff was unconstitutional. It did not fit the spirit of the general welfare. It did not fit the spirit of union, because it was benefiting one section of the North and burdening another, the South. It was not distributed evenly or equally. One section would pay more taxes than the other. That's not a true union. That's a section. That's a sectional government. Now, Jackson, though, viewed this, particularly when John C. Calhoun got involved. John C. Calhoun was a personal enemy. He viewed it as an affront to his power, his authority, in the executive branch, and he needed to defend himself against this very hostile, in his mind, uh, attacks on the Union. And so remember, I mean, this is where Jackson stands up and says, you know, Calhoun gets up and supposedly makes a toast where he says, the Union next to our liberty most dear, let us always remember that it can only be preserved by distributing equally the benefits and burdens of the Union. Jackson makes a toast, the Union long may it endure, and so Calhoun's going to resign. He's going to make his Fort Hill address. I mean, Jackson wants to hang Calhoun. All this stuff was involved in personal politics. And this is why the South Carolinians called Andrew Jackson King Andrew. This is why you had the creation of the Whig Party. They were already calling themselves Whigs and Jackson a Tory, a king. This was debatable as to what the powers of the states were. Jackson took a position that the states did not have the authority to nullify a law. The South Carolinians said, you can go back and look at Jefferson, you can go back and look at Madison, you can go back and look at the ratifying debates. Now, those weren't all available yet. I mean, some of them were. But uh, the fact is, they were going back and saying, well, these guys said that you have the power to check. I mean, we have the Tenth Amendment. What is that thing there for? If the, if the Congress passes a law that's unconstitutional and the president signs it, I mean, what are you going to do about this? So there's a dispute here, and I, I think that Jackson's positions here, and this is why I covered him in Nine Presidents, are highly problematic for the future of the American executive. Brad's position is that he preserves the independency of the executive. He makes the executive a co-equal branch. I think Washington already had done that. I think what Jackson is doing here is setting the stage for Lincoln and ultimately for the imperial presidency of the 20th century. Now, Jackson was not that. I mean, even George Washington, though, is doing that. This is why I have, when I have a chapter on Jackson and Washington together, you put they weren't Lincoln. Neither one of those individuals were Lincoln in terms of abusing power. But you can find examples in both. I mean, George Washington was also abusing power. 
in, in uh, at least according to the original Constitution, with the Whiskey Rebellion, with the Neutrality Proclamation. I mean, there are examples where Washington was going beyond the constituted powers and how it was how the Constitution was sold to the states, and Jackson was certainly doing the exact same thing. This is why I'm critical of Andrew Jackson. Now, I'm also, uh, again, very highly laudable. I think Jackson deserves credit. I think he is an American hero. I think he's someone that people should admire as an American hero. He shouldn't be considered to be some old, racist, Indian-hating white guy. I mean, I think that's problematic. Because without Andrew Jackson... The situation in the, in the southern frontier, the south, the old southwest, would have been dramatically different. Without Andrew Jackson, perhaps the War of 1812 turns out differently. Um, and so Jackson was a hero, without question, an American hero, a true example of a frontiersman, this individual spirit that uh, I think deserves credit for helping form the backbone of the American experience. So in that way, Jackson should be admired. As president, not so much. But I think Brad has done a very good job here in writing this book in defense of Andrew Jackson. And one of the things, I mean, he's trying to rescue Jackson's reputation. I think he does an excellent job with that. And uh, showing Jackson as a Republican with a lowercase r, showing Jackson as a man who really is an American hero. And again, I love the first part of this book because I'm thinking, gosh, it's like I'm reading my pig to real American heroes. We can quibble about Jackson's presidency, but um, it's, I mean, he is, his actions taken during that period of time will be recognizable to Americans today. So there, there would be no problem with that. In the historical context, in the context of the Constitution, I have a problem with it. But other than that, I mean, look, I would take Andrew Jackson over just about anybody that's been in the executive office in the last hundred years. Um, he was much more agreeable than, say, a Franklin Roosevelt or a Lyndon Johnson or a Harry Truman or a Woodrow Wilson in terms of executive power. So that's my take on Andrew Jackson. I would highly recommend, though, you go out and get Brad's book. It's well worth your time to get it. Um, again, quick read. It's a, it's a fun read. You'll You'll... Get some things out of it that you'll find. You say, yeah, Andrew Jackson's a pretty cool guy. I like Andrew Jackson. Um, and I, I will say this. I will admit this. When I was an undergraduate in college, I liked two presidents a lot, Andrew Jackson and James K. Polk. And I've talked about before in different places, you know, what, what got me into um, the presidency. And Polk was it. Now, I'm critical of Polk now, and I was a little naive back when I was an undergraduate. But uh, regardless, I mean, I used to love Jackson and Polk. I thought rhetorically. I mean, Jackson rhetorically, for the most part, with some of the, I thought, I mean, this guy's great. He's saying all these great things, and uh, he's a Republican, lowercase r, principled guy. Um, and so I've never really thought that was untrue. I don't like his actions as president, but, you know, and I remember Clyde Wilson told me uh, when I started working with Clyde Wilson, Jackson as a general was great. Jackson as a president, not so much. And I think that's that, when we had that conversation, that's always stuck with me. Um, but Jackson certainly was an American hero and somebody that we should uh, respect and someone that doesn't deserve to be dragged through the mud as he was when there was talk about taking him off the 20. And, of course, that's going to happen. Um, and so, you know, th that wasn't deserved. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The ugly part is not deserved for Andrew Jackson, unless you're talking about his actions during nullification. 
All right. Well, I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.